Welcome to Licensed Psychologist, Now What? A podcast about the journey psychologists and psychotherapists go through as they reclaim their intuition and unleash their healing gifts while maneuvering getting licensed, life, and making a living. And although this podcast host and many of the guests are mental health professionals, the information provided is not meant to be a substitute for being diagnosed and treated by a licensed mental health, medical, and related professionals, or for supervision and or consultation purposes. Hello, hello, everyone. Welcome to part three of Becoming a Psychologist from the Licensed Psychologist Now What podcast. This is your host, Dr. Lidiana Garcia. And today, I actually, I'm re-recording this episode because after I did it, I was like, oh, it did not feel right. And that usually doesn't happen to me, but I just kept thinking about it. So this is, <laughs> I don't know how to say it. This is like the second time I'm recording it, but I'm changing the structure of telling the story and hope this way it's more clear. Okay. So today I'm going to be talking more about the journey after I, basically while I was graduating, because I finished my predoctoral internship still in school because that was part of, of the last step to get my degree, my, get my PhD in counseling psychology. So I'm going to start there and then I'm going to go all the way until I go full-time prior practice, okay? So that's approximately 2008 and I went full-time prior practice 2018, so about 10 years. Wow, I did not know that. <laughs> okay, so let's start. So if you listen to that last episode, and if not, I would definitely say to listen to it if you want to know a little bit more of the cheese mare details about it. But after the clearinghouse, I was then matched with Children's Institute in Los Angeles, California. And I got that news around March and the internship was going to start in September, right after Labor Day. So that meant that we were moving that summer. And when we moved to LA, coming from I mean, for most of the time, I lived in Umacao, Puerto Rico, and I live a little piece of that in San Juan when I was going to undergrad and grad. But for the most part, I lived in Umacao. So this is very important and relevant because moving to L.A., all I knew was about the movie Training Day with Denzel Washington and gangs and scary and seedy and dirt and people can you know hurt you and stuff like that. So I was very afraid to move to L.A. And then the internship site was in mid-city slash Koreatown, so very close to downtown. And at that moment, I know it has shifted and changed. This is back in 2008. There were some spots that were dangerous. There was one time that I was walking and it said it had a picture of an image of a person, looked like a man. And it said, be careful, this person has been raping women in this street. And I live in that street. So that's how scary. I never was encounter or I never encountered any of that growing up in Umacao, meaning like seeing an image of a person. Of course, bro, there was lots of things going on around. But to that extent that walking, I could result in somebody hurting me. No, I also didn't walk. I lived in the countryside. I had to get in a car to get to anywhere. So there's that. So that was really, really hard. The other thing was the language barrier. Even though I went to school in Puerto Rico, in private school, and I went and I took English, you know, English class since kindergarten is different when you're talking and speaking it all the time. So that was really hard. There were moments that in the internship, 
I, I've always been someone that I'm, I'm very like, I want to participate here. Like I want to give my thoughts about whatever they're talking. And I, it was like that, oh, I want to talk and then whoop, but I don't know how to say it. Like, how can I express that? Like my thoughts were faster than my ability to translate. So I would hold back, hold back until like about two months in. I was like, I want to express. It might not come out perfect because there's some words that I still don't know, but I just want to express. And then after that, I started feeling more comfortable with speaking, making mistakes, with conjugation of verbs, with pronouns, with, you know, whatever. I was like, whatever, I'm just trying. And then, you know, it, but it took a little bit. That also happened with the writing. The writing was even more challenging. There was a time that the QC or the QA, the quality control person, needed to sit with me to go over my notes because I was making lots of mistakes. And I know writing notes is a technical thing that a lot of people, even in their English speakers, can struggle with the technicality. But I was also struggling with just, yeah, making sense <laughs> with some conjugations of verbs and stuff like that. So those experiences, even though I felt like I overcame a lot of it, what I want to say about it, though, is that it started adding into the little pot of I am less of. I was feeling less of because I was the only one that came from studying in a university in Puerto Rico. There was another Puerto Rican, but she went to, I think, undergrad too in the U.S. So I was the only one that came straight from the island. So I felt less of like, oh, I shouldn't be here. Less of because my school was at APA. Less of because maybe I didn't have that many experience. Less of because their school sounded more prestigious and I started comparing myself and that was really really hard the language piece kept adding to it and I'll keep sharing other experiences that kept adding into that little pot of I am less of you know comparing myself to others the other thing is it was the first time I experienced being othered meaning like who am I am I a Latina Hispana Puerto Rican Boricua Afro Latina I mean it keeps going all these labels when I was living in Puerto Rico in that moment, there were not all many labels. And that doesn't mean that there's no racism. I'm just saying that, you know, there were no many labels. So we were all like Puerto Ricans and that's it. So moving here, it was this whole thing of, you know, race and ethnicity, which I still get confused and trying to figure out where do I fit. But that aspect of being other, of having to identify with a community that I also felt that I was not, I'm not going to say welcome, but I felt different. Like, even though I'm a Latina, I was born and raised and I just came straight from the island, which has a very different experience than being a Latina in Los Angeles that maybe was born and raised in Los Angeles and went to school, you know, in the U.S. and all that and was first gen. All those experiences I did not share. Also with the immigration, I felt that I, you know, our experiences, even though I had the cultural shock and all that kind of stuff. But when I moved to the U.S., I mean, to mainland, I don't know how to call it. I was still a U.S. citizen. So that experience of going through any like, you know, crossing a border or illegally or any like that, I did not experience that. And it was very interesting because also in Puerto Rico, I think it's like an island thing, like concept that happens. I was sheltered from all these stories. I did not know. I was never taught any of that. And there was no social media at that time or, you know, the Internet was very basic. So I was not exposed to any of that. So I remember being like, oh my God, I feel like I need to learn so much about a little bit of their experiences because that were the client that I was serving. We could connect with the language and there were still a lot of differences. I had to like sometimes get a Google and find a thesaurus to kind of say that we're in a different way because in Puerto Rico we speak differently from mostly Central American Latinos in, the, in California and LA. So 
so there was that. So it always like I felt different. I felt different because I was not even though I was American, I was not white enough here. I was not Latina like enough or the same. And there was not many Puerto Ricans. So that aspect kept adding into the I'm different, I'm less of. Something that I do want to say is I also experienced one instance that I, I kind of define as racism. Basically, I had a colleague, colleague, no colleague. Yeah. See, I keep making mistakes here and there. I had a colleague while we were co-facilitating a group who asked me not to speak Spanish or if I would speak Spanish with a client that was just moved to the U.S. from Central America that I needed to translate everything. That aspect was so shaming for me, just brought again the difference and you know, it was worked through, thank God, Bia having great supervision. So that part was kind of, in a way, felt resolved. But that was also my first experience of having someone to say, like, hide your... I felt like it was like, hide where you come from. Like, over here, kind of like, assimilate, become white enough. I mean, kind of like that push. And it was hard because also the person didn't do it in front of the client. But then I was like, I'm going to keep doing this. This is empowering that client to feel heard, to feel like seen that she's not the only one. So, but that happened as well. With the great supervision that I had, what I mean with that is I had a supervision with the director of the program. He was near New Yorkian. And actually his family is from Vieques and I'm from Macau. So from Macau, I could see Vieques from my house. So I felt like a little bit of that connection of the East Coast. And he's great. His supervision was amazing, was very cultural appropriate and very much of like this community. He was like the heart of the community base and really meeting the clients where they are. I felt like a little bit of social work, which I I felt very blessed to have that experience to the point that <laughs> the supervisor encouraged me to meet the families in their home if we needed. And there was one case that a minor was removed from the house and now the minor was still having some visitations with the other parent and they were planning or wanting to plan a quinceañera. And part of the treatment, if we want to say, was that I, it was beautifully worked, but basically via the quinceañera planning, the family was able to get back together and agreed in something. And it was so beautiful. Like for, and what I mean with that is like, I would talk with the client, ask the client what they wanted for the quinceañera. And then speak with the parent that had the custody. And then when I would meet with the other parent that did not have the custody, you know, provide them the information. And then there was some sessions that we had all together. And that helped to improve the communication, the bonding, the relating to each other in a cohesive kind of respectful way, which helped down the road for client to feel better because there was that situation of their parents arguing and not being in agreement. So that aspect was beautiful. And I, I think Still to this day, people that know, like meet me and then they went to work at Children's Institute, they tell me, oh, you're like the quinceañera case or something. So it was beautiful. The other thing was, the last thing I'll say during this time, during my pre-doctoral, I just have here my notes, is I did my, I wrote my dissertation during long distance and that was really hard. And my dissertation was a qualitative, well, technically a mix methods that included four pairs of sisters that one got pregnant while they were a teenager and the other one didn't. And during that time, it was so hard because I had to communicate with my supervisor via email and I felt like I did not know what I was doing. But, you know, the long story short is I was able to pass it and which it was great. 
and I loved it. When I went to do and defend it to Puerto Rico, they asked me questions of things that I was already doing because in my internship, I asked the supervisor to create a program so I can put in practice what I was learning about preventing teenage pregnancy. So I did a little program that I created for a middle school. And the second round that I did it, I had some of my intern colleagues join me, which it was a beautiful group. And the other thing that I'll say is my other supervisor and during that period, that year, an amazing supervisor that I still see as one of my mentors, one of the persons she specializes in trauma and going to her office was like a little safe haven. She had all these books, all these resources, and was always very encouraging, very loving from a very non-judgmental stance, but very knowledgeable in the neuroscience and all that. And I remember that supervisor planted the seeds of you have potential and you're here for more. And one thing that now I understand that she mentioned was in order to make big changes is not in the one-on-one because you can make a big changes, but it's not going to, you know, like you're not necessarily touching more people because you're limited to how many hours you can do one-on-one therapy. But she kind of encouraged me to move into the teaching, supervising, mentoring, which right now I am. So I am so grateful that Dr. Leslie Russ saw that back in 2008, (laughs) 2009, probably that's when she mentioned it. And the other supervisor, I'm just going to name him as well, is Dr. George Vermoudis, is the one that was the director at that moment. That was the one that amazing supervisor. So overall, the experience was like all these challenges. And at the same time, I felt like I had the support and the validation and being seen in a safe place to explore things. So that was really good. Now let's move into postdoc. So at this time, I'm finishing my pre-doctoral internship. My husband is still learning English, doesn't have a job or a steady job of making money. We're one year living in LA. The savings that we brought were like so thin because I was earning so little. I was like in the 20,000 rate in LA. So at that moment, even though I really kind of thought of going into a formal postdoc, I, I had to take a job, like a formal job. So that's what I did. I actually continued working in Children's Institute and I was part now of the full service partnership team in the South Bay office. And my wages went two, four, six, kind of almost um, triplicando, like, you know, multiply by almost three. <laughs> Here's a Spanglish piece. See, I'm still with the language. <laughs> and during this time, even though that happened and we were able to move to a much better place because before then we lived in a studio that had cockroaches and, uh, you know, we were just passing by. Like, it felt like student living. This time we moved to a one-bedroom apartment and we were able to buy a formal bed <laughs> before we were mostly sleeping in the floor with mattresses or and for a long time in air mattress. And during that time, so... I'm bringing this because the piece that I wanted to say is there were still some financial constraints, some limitations. And I remember feeling a little frustrated and sometimes being at work. I work with this community that also struggle. I mean, way more, obviously, way more of financial constraints. And our team will meet because there were some funding to provide for furniture and stuff. And I would like feel like I had to like duck my face so they wouldn't notice my, oh my God, we're buying them a kitchen table, a dining table. And I don't even have the funds to purchase those things. And it was very interesting to to that, to kind of like 
even though I was put in this pedestal of being Dr. Lidiana, because at that moment I already had my degree, I felt like so below, so less of because of when I would get home, I would get back to my reality that I don't have a sofa, I don't have furniture, like we're limited on things and all that kind of stuff. But yeah. The other thing is that around this time, the population that I was working was very intense. Sometimes I would see clients four times a week and I was driving because I really like long distance. Sometimes to return to get back home from after work, it would take me like almost two hours. So the chronic stress of being in that, like finishing school, going to internship, working on dissertation every Saturday. And then now being in postdoc, driving so far, having such an intense population that I was on call 24-7, it started to pick up. It started to like have an impact in my body. And I started experiencing like difficulty breathing to the point that I went to a doctor and they gave me like an asthma inhaler because I, but they didn't ask about anxiety. But now as I see back, it was like anxiety. There would be moments that I would feel like, I would say like mini panic attacks, I guess. I would feel like I couldn't breathe. And it was just all those things that were accumulating. And now it was becoming chronic and toxic stress. I was also then studying for my EPPP. And for that, I started studying midway in my postdoc. And when I say postdoc, it was not a formal, but just, you know, I was completing that 1,000 hours extra so I can complete the 3,000 hours so I can take and sit down to take my tests for licensure. So that was hard. I remember the first day I went there, we had to already complete a practice test. And when the teacher, I took the class in person, when the teacher met with me, she kind of like individually met with each other just to touch base and provide us some feedback. She kind of say, you're behind. <laughs> and I was like, what? She was like, your score is so low. Because I was like, oh, I want to take the test in May. She's like, this was like January. She was like, you won't be able to take it in May. And you're going to have to work really hard if you want to pass this test because your score is like the baseline is even lower than the average so you have to work harder in one side of me that was like oh my god kind of like adding to the pile less of I'm not good enough and then the other part got anger and was like what kind of like you cannot tell me what I cannot do I'm gonna prove you and everyone in the system that I can so I anchored in that energy I anchored in that energy and I created this very intense work study plan. So every Saturday I was studying. Every Thursdays, I think it was Thursday, I had a class from about, I think it was like about 6 to 10 p.m. after working the long hours with the clientele that I was just telling you. And driving, I would listen to the audios of the lectures and stuff. And I also felt like I was learning English because I took the... I don't remember right now the name, but Sharon was the name of the creator. And her way of speaking English was so like clear that I learned to say words and stuff that I didn't know. I also felt like I was now learning a lot of the theories, a lot of the interventions, a lot of the information in English because I learned a lot of that in Spanish. So now I was learning more about the English term. Because you can take the P in Spanish, but I'm like, I don't know if it's going to be more like from Spain, Spanish or Central America, Spanish, and I might not get it. So I'm just going to take it in English. So super long story short, I follow up that plan 
I studied every Saturday and I passed it on my first intent. That was, I think this was one of the first times in my life that I felt good enough. And I felt like, wow, I worked towards something that people thought I was not capable of. And later on, when I went on, I met people that didn't pass it, that came from very prestigious schools that I thought, oh, they're going to pass it. And it also reminded me, like, stop comparing yourself. Stop. It was like one of those like waking moments, like, you are good enough. You have it. You have it with you. Maybe you came from X, Y, and Z, but that doesn't mean that you don't have the inherited gifts or the potential or the interest or the greed or whatever you want to call it. Like, you have it. Stop comparing yourself. And that moment was amazing. Around that time, we moved to Puerto Rico because my husband wanted to try what he was learning here to create the business in Puerto Rico and make money. And what happened was that I was able to complete the hours that I needed. Um, so then I was able to ask in Puerto Rico for the licensure. And with the EPPP, they were able to validate. So then I got licensed in Puerto Rico. Over there, I worked as a professor in one of university and as a psychologist in another. It was great experiences re- going back to teaching, mentoring students. It was lovely. And there was a lot of things that also were like hard during that time. My husband's business didn't pan out. So like about two, three months in it, he fell into like this deep depression because finally, you know, we did all that big change and then it was not panning out. So that was hard. I took again the being the breadwinner, but then I was now building resentment because I was like, okay, I understand that you're going through this, but this is like year three. Like, can you make some money? That part was really, really hard. So after long consideration and me feeling like I wanted to explore back, we moved back to LA and we moved back and I came actually in December 2011 for an interview somewhere that I wanted. And they called me for a second interview. And when they called me for that second interview, I bought just a one-way ticket on my own. I came here, did the second interview for a position that I thought I loved. And because at that moment, I didn't have then the California license because I only had the EPPP. I needed to pass the second test, the laws and ethics test. So there was a position that did not require a license. It was more an advocate for sexual abuse cases and rape cases. Anyhow. I came for the second interview. At the end, they're like, oh my God, we want you. Like, we'll keep in touch. So then when that happened and they gave me that feedback, I bought my husband and my dog, because now I had a dog, a one-way ticket to LA. So we, I moved everyone in February. When they got here, I also took the test and I passed it for the CLP, whatever the name, for the law and ethic test. And that was in February. And when, then when they got here, the other job ghosted me. They didn't respond to emails. They didn't respond to my callings. It was like, whoa, like, wait, now I have my dog here, my husband here. So a friend of ours hosted us and allowed us to stay in their living room, but they had three cats and I had a dog. So that whole aspect was really hard. And they live in Topanga and like around the first week that we were there, my, my daughter, well, my dog, got a tick. So then I was like, what is this? So I took, you know, we took it out, but we took it to the vet and that was like $300. You know how it goes in the vet. So, and I mean, probably as well deserved for the people that study that. I'm just saying that I was not expecting. The other place ghosted me. My husband didn't have a job. Now we had the dog. We're like, what are we going to do? And we bought a car. 
because we figure out, <laughs> we figure out, I'm just laughing now, like, we were like determined that I was going to stay and that they were going to call me for that like offer or, you know, so we bought a car because renting a car could have been more expensive. And we're like, well, if we're going to stay here, we might as well buy a car. So we bought a car and that car broke down <laughs> and the battery, it was a Prius. It was in back in 2012 and then we had to get it exchanged. But then now we had a car, a Doug, <laughs> my husband didn't have a job. We would go every day to like Santa Monica, we would park. I would be with my dog while my husband was knocking door by door, restaurant by restaurant, hotel by hotel. And I was like, you need to take out your degree out of your CV. It was hard. So during that time, I started looking for another job. And super long story short, they asked me to do a second interview and then a third interview. So the whole process took from since February, the first interview, I started in April which another piece of the big story is that I also, they needed a chicken pox vaccine. I didn't have it because that was optional at that time. So then it takes like a month from the first dose to the second dose. So that in itself was also, it added to the time. So we didn't, yeah. And then as soon as they said, yes, we signed a lease. <laughs> and then they like, wait, you need this other vaccine. So you need to wait another month. And we're like, oh my God. It was like this, like, whoo, what? It was like an up and down, up and down subway helped to survive during February for the foot long $5. We got in a second. And when I say, you know, within months, like $10,000 in debt, thank God we had like a, that credit card. It was crazy. So then I started working there. And what I wanted to share there is it was my first time experiencing, again, feeling less of again, because now I was working you know, as a therapist, not necessarily, but I was also working as a supervisor in a quote unquote prestigious internship site. And the first student that I had that I was assigned to supervise came from UCLA. So I was like, who am I? Like all this kind of stuff. And then I also felt very intimidated by one of my supervisors because they were white and strong kind of personality. And it triggered a little bit of my father authoritarian style and all that. So then when I would show in those supervisions or to talk and all that, I would feel like I would like succumb and kind of become this little girl. And then I was like aware of it, but I, I just felt like I couldn't get out of it. So I did not like that as well. It was very challenging because they also asked me to do psychological testing. And I had a lot of experience in Spanish. I didn't have to do that in my pre and postdoc. But here I was now doing psych testing. So even though I was licensed, I was assigned to someone to kind of supervise my psych testing. So again, feeling like, oh my God, like I need all this extra support. I'm so glad that something was that I was like part of my natural personality is that I don't let those things like hold me back. It's like, okay, I guess it's the resilience that comes from my ancestors, from everything that they want. It's like, okay, another stepping stone, just step on in and kind of keep going. So that's the good side. The bad side is then I'm not recognizing all this shit is being done to me. All this stuff is being hurting me. And I need to also like process it and let it go. Because even though I'm kind of like, let's just keep going, I'm ignoring it in a way. So that keeps building and building up. I eventually went part time because I was like, first of all, I've never envisioned myself being in a community mental health and growing within the agency. So I was like, this is not for me. What I want to do is I want to mentor, I want to teach, I want to like have a small practice. I don't want to be a full-time practice. 
um, therapist and I want all these other things that this job is not giving me. Plus, it's not letting me even think that much of extra, even though I started a side hustle of private practice because I didn't have that much of the time. So that was also really, really, really hard. The other thing that I want to say about that is I met amazing colleagues that I still have some relationships, some amazing Latina therapists that they helped me. They helped me, which is, it was again a reminder that even in challenging times, I always felt, you know, support by some people. And that was really nice to now see again and, you know, reflect about it. So I started a small private practice renting by the hour, which I was so grateful. And it started with one of my colleagues that she referred me a immigration case because she was a social worker. And she was like, I don't want to do it. And I cannot do it. You do it. And I was like, well, I took that little big step and started building on that. Saturday, sometimes because I was a school base, sometimes after school, like around four or five slots. And then I got pregnant and I was like, this is too much. And eventually I left and went working part-time for the Chicago school as a supervisor. So basically over there, I was in charge of the practicum site at the LA Mission. And part of their task was individual group and psychological testing. So I'm like, oh my God, universe, you're so funny. Now I'm supervising people writing reports. It's like this, you know, just, yeah, just keep on going. You never know where you're going to be. I love that position, love. I had like about eight supervisees at a time. And at the same time, it was a lot of work. There was a lot of, you know, extra work, extra hours. And the pay was very, very low because I did not even ask for a raise or I did not negotiate it, anything. So eventually built the resentment of like, I'm doing all this, but it's not sustainable. And now I have a baby. So this is how I'm going to end this episode, which is like, I took a big leap of fate and let that go as my prior practice was growing and then move into my prior practice. So that's what I'll share more next part four. I'll share more about that journey of working fully as a self-employed and then the whole journey of that and then more about the present and the future. So join me in for part four next week. Until then, thank you so much for listening. This has been so fun to like write a story and reflect about it. I hope it resonates with you. Let me know. Send me an email, info at the Beyond Resilience Live. And also, if you're interested to get more one-on-one and group from me, I have the upcoming mentorship slash coaching program for psychotherapists and psychologists that are building their own businesses and that I want to take it to the next level, that want to become the healer that they always envision, tap back into their authenticity, inner power, and all of that. So it's going to be beautiful. We're going to start with a very nice virtual retreat that is going to include a cacao ceremony to open our hearts and go deeper. So to learn more about it, you can see the link over here. There's also going to be an open house coming soon that you can RSVP to learn more about it and make your decision. Just know that if you're interested about it, there is an application process, which part of it includes a call with me to kind of like get to know each other and see, you know, if this would be a good opportunity for you. And if I feel like you'll be also like a good candidate for the program. So if you're interested in it, I would just say by following the link already scheduled, like complete the little form so I can send you the email so you can schedule the call. Thank you so much. Have a great rest of your week. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. Licensed psychologist, now what? 
to make sure you don't miss any episode, make sure to subscribe via your favorite podcast player and to join our email list via our website. Lastly, I will appreciate if you would rate and review our podcast to help us reach more folks that can benefit from the information provided here. Until next time, bye-bye.